This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Today, um, we're going into an area that is not normally associated with ecclesiology, uh, but um, I think it is central to ecclesiology, central to the definition of the Catholic Church, uh, not just in this period, but throughout its entire history. And it is the way in which the church as not just an institution, but as the community of saints headed by Christ himself is a point of contact with the supernatural. And let's face it, that is the basic assumption of most religions, is that there are two realms, the natural and the supernatural, right? And we live in the natural world, but uh, from, from the very beginning, the, the Catholic Church has insisted that it does have, through Jesus and the authority given to the apostles and their successors, the ability to tap the supernatural. So um, in this period, 16th, 17th century, and into the 18th and down to the present, this has remained one of the more salient and um, definitive traits of the Catholic Church and actually of its ecclesiology. You know, as uh, someone said to me a few months ago about their own religious upbringing, I said, well, you know, I, I grew up in, uh, in my family. Yeah, we went to church every Sunday because that's a good place to meet nice people. And that is why we went to church. Well, that might be true in some churches. Uh, it's, that can be true in the Catholic church too, but that is not the raison d'etre of the church, as important as fellowship is. So anyway, uh, without further ado, uh, let's get there. Uh, the title is intended to um, shock. Yeah, you don't usually think of saints and miracles as being weaponized, but in this period they are. You know, there's an internal, internal, uh, as I just said, uh, uh, essential component to saints and miracles in Catholic ecclesiology. Uh, but in this period, they can become part of the polemic against Protestantism and against skepticism. Uh, so the church becomes more of a stairway to heaven in comparison to other churches in a real sense, not just stairway to heaven at the point of death, when one goes to the hereafter, but stairway to heaven in the here and now. And this is an image that we'll see later again of St. Joseph of Cupertino levitating and making the wife of the Admiral of Castile faint. That's where we're going. So back to yesterday's lecture, we've met Max Weber. We know that for him, modernity is defined uh, by its disenchantment of the world, 
the key turning point in the transition to modernity is this Entzauberung der Welt, this disenchantment of the world. And uh, keep in mind, his mother was a Calvinist. And I've mentioned this before, but now we'll go into it a little more deeply. The Protestant rejection of the miraculous. It's one thing Luther had to say. Those visible works are simply signs for the ignorant, unbelieving crowd, and for their sakes that are yet to be attracted. But as for us who know already all we do know and believe the gospel, what do we want them for? We don't need them. John Calvin, we may also fitly remember that Satan has his miracles, which, though they are deceitful tricks rather than true powers, and this is an important point, are such a sort as to mislead the simple-minded and untutored. So let's pause here for a second. Although Protestants rejected the notion uh, or actually the belief in uh, the fact that miracles continued to happen after the death of the 12 apostles. And although they charged that all of the miracles claimed by the Catholic Church were demonic in nature, they did believe that the devil could perform tricks that seemed to be miracles. So you see already we're at the polemical edge of this era because one of the reasons, practical reasons, very pragmatic reason, that Protestants reject the miracles claimed by the Catholic Church is that these miracles claimed by the church can make the Catholic Church look like the true church, just like the apostolic church. So what the Protestants do is they demonize Catholic miracles. And um, they do all sorts of damage to people. Idolatry has been nourished by wonderful miracles, yet these are not sufficient to sanction the superstition either of magicians or idolaters. So Catholics actually are placed in the same category as magicians. And they're certainly, in, in Calvin's view, idolaters. <clears throat> Protestant Reformation was, in fact, a metaphysical and epistemic revolution. Uh, it was a new way of interpreting reality and of approaching the ultimate and the supernatural. And to put it in the simplest terms, it redrew the boundaries between heaven and earth, the sacred and the profane, because Protestants made matter and spirit much less compatible. Guiding principle of reformed Protestant metaphysics, and therefore also of their hermeneutic or interpretive principles, was the incompatibility of spirit and matter. And this principle, in turn, was derived from three assumptions. Zwingli. The finite cannot contain the infinite, finitum known as capax infiniti. And secondly, quantum sensui tribueris, tantum spiritui detraxeris. Whatever you sort of give over to the sense world, 
the more you focus on the sensory, the more you take away from the spiritual. So actually, the the matter is not just um, matter; it's an obstacle to spirit. And John Calvin. Whatever holds down and confines the senses to the earth is contrary to the covenant of God, in which, inviting us to himself, he permits us to think of nothing but what is spiritual. So there you see already, you know Catholic theology well, that this is very, very different. And it, it defines, it creates a very different kind of church. So... These principles, Protestant desacralization of the world, natural versus supernatural. The Reformed Protestant tradition assumed God was radically transcendent and that the supernatural realm was wholly other, above and beyond the natural created order. Matter versus spirit. Their metaphysics assumes that matter is not just incapable of bridging the gap between heaven and earth, but is actually an obstacle. And third, notice these are all kind of dichotomies, right? Uh, they're, they're dichotomies um, rather than poles that, yes, you've got two different poles, but they do connect. Here, in human versus divine, Reformed Protestant anthropology assumes that humans are incapable of bridging the gap between themselves and their creator, even with the gift of grace. Matter cannot be divinized. Consequently, there's a rejection of the mystical tradition of the Catholic and Orthodox churches. It is absolutely necessary to reject this. And of course, in the Orthodox Church, they, they do have their, their own term, theosis or divinization. In both traditions, Orthodox and Catholic, you have the idea of a mystical union, a union mystica. So for Protestants, there can be no ecstasies and raptures, spiritual or corporeal. All these Catholic mystics who claim these experiences and who perform miracles, that's the work of the devil in the Protestant viewpoint. And now let's dig a little deeper into the Catholic tradition. St. Augustine, why they say are those miracles which you affirm were wrought formerly wrought no longer? So you see in the, in the fourth and fifth century that there are critics and skeptics already uh, within the church itself saying, why, why don't we have miracles anymore? I might indeed reply that miracles were necessary before the world believed in order that it might believe. This is a central argument, and we'll get to the key scriptural text in a few minutes. But even now, miracles are wrought in the name of Christ, whether by his sacraments, so you see the sacraments as part of the ecclesiology, or by the prayers or relics of his saints. What am I to do? I'm so pressed by the promise of finishing this work, the city of God, that I cannot record all the miracles I know. Even now I beg these persons as readers 
to excuse me and to consider how long it would take for me to relate all those miracles, which the necessity of finishing the work I have undertaken forces me to omit. Oh my God. More Augustine. Faustus and Manichaean argued that Christian miracles were contrary to nature and therefore false. Augustine replies to this Manichaean, and remember, keep in mind, Augustine had been a Manichaean when he was younger. Replied by distinguishing two ways in which the expression contrary to nature may be taken. If it is understood to mean contrary to the divinely established and universal order of things, then clearly God can no more act in this way than he can act against himself. But definition is key. Augustine adds, there is no impropriety in saying that God does something against nature when it is contrary to what we know of nature. For we give the name nature to the usual and known course of nature. And whatever God does contrary to this, we call prodigies or miracles. And this is a very, very important key definition that gets passed on to the Middle Ages and our friend, our best friend, St. Thomas Aquinas, defines the exact nature of a miracle. And there you have the text from the Summa. Oh no, excuse, Summa Contra Gentilis. Uh, a miracle is a sensible effect produced by God, which transcends all the forces of nature. A miracle transcends all the forces of nature. A miracle does not contradict, destroy, antagonize, or violate the forces of nature. Same way that uh, grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it, right? That's parentheses. It is an effect which exceeds all the inherent powers of forces of nature. It is something that happens as an exception to the regular working of the established order. God who made the forces of nature can cause something to happen at his will, which gives evidence of his dominion over these forces. Uh, that is not Thomas himself, but Dominic Dolan on uh, his article on St. Thomas on miracles. Then we get to the age of reason. And to the Enlightenment, uh, where, where this uh, debate over where the miracles can happen uh, shifts over from the theological to the purely philosophical. And all of these uh, enlightened beings, these Enlightenment figures, they're so enlightened, they need sunglasses. And actually, for some reason, you can do this yourself. Google, you know, Enlightenment uh, figures, or Enlightenment thinkers, Enlightenment philosoph philosophers sunglasses and you'll get you'll see i didn't make these images they exist on the internet spinoza he argued that nature can't be contravened but that she preserves a fixed and immutable course thus a miracle is a sheer absurdity and here is his argument this part similar to thomas Will of God is identical with the laws of nature. Notice there's no transcend there, identical. 
A miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, yet very different from Kant's. Necessarily, God's will is inviolable. Therefore, miracles can't happen. Very logical, but completely different set of premises. Voltaire, it is impossible. A being infinitely wise can have made laws to violate them. He could not derange the machine, but with a view of making it work better. But it is evident that God, all wise and omnipotent, originally made this immense machine, the universe, as good as perfect as he was able. If he saw that some imperfections would arise from the nature of matter, he provided for that in the beginning, and accordingly, he will never change anything in it. Wow. Well, completely different definition. Once again, David Hume. And in, in this image, I think he's wearing women's sunglasses, it looks like to me. Miracles, a violation of the laws of nature. Notice, all these Enlightenment thinkers uh, are, don't agree with Thomas. Aquinas uh, on this. Uh, God doesn't violate the laws of nature. He works with them. He just knows how to work it. Miracles violation of the laws of nature and is a firm and an unalterable experience has established these laws. The proof against the miracle from the very nature of the fact is and as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. Plain consequence is, and this is the general maxim worthy of attention, no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. Here, Hume's getting funny. And even in that case, there's a mutual destruction of arguments and the superior only gives us an assurance suitable to that degree of force which remains after deducing the inferior in here, you know, you, you lose your audience or most audiences. A miracle supported by any human testimony is more properly a subject of derision than of argument. And what's happening in the Catholic church at this time? Well, who's in charge? Prospero Lambertini, Pope Benedict Fourteenth. And look at his dates. He, he was Pope for 18 years. Uh, but before he was Pope, uh, he was very active uh, in the Curia in bringing the church up to date, up to day, aggiornamento, with empirical science. And he uh, is responsible, not single-handedly, but he is mostly responsible for um, revamping the canonization process and establishing new rules, logical, reasonable rules for determining, determining whether miracles are genuine or not. So as you can see, here are the posts that he held. He was consultor of the Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Roman and Universal Inquisition. He was promoter of the faith. The figure we know now in canonization procedures as the devil's advocate, the person who tries to find every reason and every logical argument against something being a miracle, 
Prospero Lambertini was himself the devil's advocate and basically uh, established the position in the canonization process. And uh, then he was canon theologus of the Sacred Congregation of Rites, which takes care of handling canonizations. And then from 1734 to 1738, before he was Pope, he writes this massive series of volumes on the beatification of the servants of God and the canonization of the blessed, which develops a new classification of miracles in which he counteracts Spinoza and all those who came after him uh, in his denial of miracles by claiming along with St. Augustine that miracles are not contrary to the laws of nature, but simply beyond our limited knowledge of eternal laws and the laws of nature. And I've mentioned these two books yesterday, Charles Taylor, Brad Gregory, they both agree with Weber about disenchantment, but they argue that disenchantment was not necessarily good. So moving on, what do Protestants do with miracles in the Bible? Well, they all, they're all real. Yes, of course they were real. They were necessary because God had to show his power. Uh, so here we have a painting of crossing of the Red Sea by a, a Dutch artist. I don't know much about Van den Broek, but I would uh, met, bet real money that he might have been a Calvinist artist. Um, so miracles are okay in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament. Boy, yes, read any gospel miracle after miracle after miracle performed by Jesus. And sometimes he gets annoyed with the, the 12 apostles because you know they, they, they stumble, they can't perform miracles. Or like Peter, when he walks out of the boat and into the water, he starts to sink. Uh, oh, please. And then there's that, 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 that phrase, I forget what ailment the, the man had, came to Jesus and said, please heal me if you want. Uh, if you only believe, says Jesus, says, oh yes, please, please help my unbelief. And then he heals the man. But here we have El Greco, Jesus healing the blind man. And here's that key text. The very end of Mark's gospel lets you know very clearly. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up to heaven. He sat at the right hand of God. Then, the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Protestants and Catholics share this text. Protestants used it in the 16th and 17th century to say that this is why there are miracles in the New Testament, but they have stopped because why? Why did they stop? Because the word preached by Jesus and the apostles had already been confirmed through the first generation. That's an interesting argument, but Catholics find all kinds of problems with it. So 
respect to ecclesiology, you know. Catholic Church is the stairway to heaven. Constantly, constantly, not just uh, after death. And we have the biggest miracle of all takes place every day. I don't know if anybody's ever calculated how many masses are said on any given day throughout the earth nowadays in 2021 and what that number would be, how many masses are said every day. But every mass, every Eucharist is a miracle. And here we have a, a 16th century painting uh, from a Flemish artist depicting the miracle of St. Gregory the Great where as he was consecrating the bread and wine, Jesus appeared bodily with all of the instruments of his passion right on the altar. There are miracles in the lives of the saints. Uh, and here, you know, uh, say, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of St. Thomas Aquinas, um, when he said he was going to join the Dominicans, really truly upset his family because, you know, the Dominicans were a brand new order and they had no reputation. They were not in the least prestigious. So they, they locked them up in a room and sent a prostitute in to change his mind. But uh, he was rescued by God. Uh, and, and there you have the temptation of St. Thomas by Velasquez. And um, in case COVID comes back, you can actually look up online and get this space mask. Uh, it'll protect you further than any other mask. And then there are miracles within mystical experiences and mystical visions, such as the mystical marriage of St. Catherine of Siena to Christ. And there are so many depictions of this miracle that um, I've lost count. Uh, this one is by Lorenzo D'Alessandro da San Severino, 15th century. But notice that uh, the infant Jesus is putting a ring on Catherine's finger, uh, a ring which was invisible to everyone but her. In the same way that she receives the stigmata, but they're, they're only visible to her, not to someone else. Then there's mystical ecstasy itself. And um, in the 16th century, perhaps the best known all Catholic mystics was Teresa of Avila. And this sculpture by Gian Lorenzo Bernini, um, which is in a Carmelite church in Rome, uh, depicts one of her mystical experiences in which uh, an angel came and pierced her with, uh, the correct word is a dart, which is about somewhere between an arrow and a lance. But here Bernini chose to turn the angel more into a Cupid figure with his little arrow. And then there are physical miracles that accompany ecstasy. Best known of all is stigmata, and uh, it basically begins with St. Francis. And then it starts happening to others too. It's a very strange miracle. And uh, I love this painting by Giovanni Bellini. Uh, 
which is in the Frick Gallery in New York. Uh, and if you can afford it, the, the, the exorbitant entry fee, it's really worth going there and, and standing right as close to it as you can. Because if you look closely, you see it's a modern painting. You see, St. Francis is having his ecstasy, but he's the only one who sees it. And the stigmata are, 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 are appearing, but they're appearing very subtly in Bellini's painting, as you can see. They're tiny little dots in his palms, and you can see the same happening to his feet, but you can't see it happening to his side. And here you have St. Francis, the nature mystic out in nature, and there's the there's the city of man back in the, in the distance. Uh, and there also that donkey, it's brother ass, which is what St. Francis called his own body, uh, brother ass. Stigmata is very weird. And actually, if you read the early lives of St. Francis, uh, you'll see that the stigmata are not just holes, they're like nails protrude, that protrude from his hands and feet. Very, very weird. And then there's levitation. And you can tell that um, whoever took this photograph uh, put a sort of quasi-Franciscan habit on this model and it's black rather than brown or something, but um, the shoes are way too fancy. And expensive for anyone who's taken about poverty. Levitation, one of the strangest phenomena. Uh, it sort of has uh, biblical texts that it can be linked to, and this is one of them. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 2. St. Paul saying, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Uh, God knows, but he didn't know. And two paintings by a French artist, Nicolas Poussin. But again, um, you know, we do find some early Christian levitations, not very many. Not very many. Uh, it really, it's a medieval, begins to be a, a more common phenomenon in the Middle Ages. And once again, we have to go to Francis. And uh, here's a description of one from Bonaventure's Life of Francis. There he was beheld praying by night, his hands stretched out after the manner of a cross, his whole body uplifted from the earth and wrapped in a shining cloud as though the wondrous illumination of the body were a witness unto the wondrous enlightenment of his mind. And there's uh, Giotto's uh, rendition of this at the Basilica in Assisi. But notice uh, there's this belief in divinization, Greek theosis. Francis is being divinized. I mean, he becomes a living image of Christ with the stigmata for heaven's sakes. And, and, and he's glowing and this, you know, Bonaventure, uh, of course, puts this uh, more intellectual twist on the whole thing, saying that the illumination of the body is also the enlightenment of Francis's mind. In the 16th and 17th century, there are more levitating saints and mystics than in any other century. 
And here we have Loyola, St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. Um, there are actually three illustrated lives of um, St. Ignatius. This is one of them. Uh, but in the Acta Sanctorum, here's what the text says. He was observed many times at night, his room filled with a bright light. There we go again. And he was seen raised up in the air with his knees bent, weeping and sighing and saying, my God, how infinitely good you are. You even put up with those who are evil and perverse, which is what I am. Yeah. And there are two other uh, illustrations of this from the other two illustrated lives of St. Francis. But let me point this out to you that in, in all of these um, depictions of levitation that you're going to see, and actually in just about any that you can find, the artist make sure to include eyewitnesses, right? Look, there are witnesses in the back, although it looks like a, it's a confessional and they may not be paying attention, but look at the witnesses here and the glowing. And then St. Teresa of Avila, um, she describes, she's the only mystic I have found who describes what it felt like to levitate. Uh, but here, right in front of the Bishop of Avila, the other nuns and visitors to the convent of the Incarnation, the force of this rapture was so tremendous that without being able to resist it, she rose up higher than the window through which the Bishop was about to give her communion. So actually the, the artist is depicting this incorrectly because she would have been on the other side uh, of that window and that window would have had a grill in it. She also uh, levitated jointly with John of the Cross. Uh, and there you have a more correct depiction of that, that space. There's the locutorio where the nuns uh, communicate with the outside world. Uh, covered by a grill. Teresa and John were discussing the Trinity, and suddenly, whoops, up, they both go up. And there's one depiction of it. And here's another from the 17th century. Notice that John has gone up with his chair. Now, let me add um, something here that I don't think is going to take much time, but it, it is this place, this very spot where this happens that inspired me to write the book I have just finished on levitation and bilocation. Because we're being uh, walked around by the tour guide uh, at the Convent of the Incarnation. And we get to this spot and she's been pointing things out to us. You know, here's the refectory where the nuns ate, there's the kitchen. Uh, here's the staircase where Teresa broke her arm. Uh, and then we get to the locutorio. And she says, oh, and here is where uh, Teresa and John of the Cross levitated together for the first time. Because that happened more than once. Oh, my God. Uh, my, my head kind of exploded because I had never uh, seen or heard anyone describe levitation in, in such a matter-of-fact way. The levitation itself uh, for the tour guide was no different from the staircase. It was just a fact. And um, I've been obsessed with this ever since. 
that was 1983. So almost 40 years ago, I'm still working on it. Not levitation, I'm not working on that. <clears throat> there is no greater levitator than St. Joseph of Cupertino. And there you see his dates, 1603 to 1663, right? Uh, now, no Protestant uh, would, would uh, accept any of this, except as demonic. Yeah, sure, people like Teresa and Joseph fly, but that's because the devil makes them fly. Um, but I'm going to skip over the, the, the full text that I have put on the slide, uh, but this is from the life of St. Joseph by uh, Pastorovici. It's an 18th century hagiography. The story here is that some workmen were putting up a, a large cross outdoors, but it was too heavy for them and they couldn't get it into the hole that they had dug for it. So St. Joseph, pretty much like Superman, flew over there, grabbed it, and stuck it in the hole. Now here's the weird thing about Joseph Cupertino. He flies more times than anyone else, higher than anyone else. He not only hovers, he actually flies. And when he's up there in the air, he's, he's weightless. He can perch on tiny little branches of trees, right? And even, even more remarkable and unique, every time that he takes off, and, and let, me, let me explain this, because I have skipped over this, and it's very important. Levitations are always a side effect of ecstasy, right? And they are, according to Teresa, irresistible. It just happens. And you cannot bring it on. It's a gift given to you by God during mystical ecstasy. Your body just goes up. And Teresa's explanation was that the soul is drawn up towards heaven so forcefully in a mystical ecstasy that the body has to follow. And I've run into three mystics who have used the similar expression. And it's pretty clear to me they were not reading each other's words. They all use the same image, that the soul starts to leave the body like a bullet leaves a gun. <laughs> you know you're in the 17th century when you get this description. But anyway, um, Joseph always lets out some kind of scream when he goes up. And in the Italian, it's uh, grido, strilo, urlo, and they're used interchangeably, but they all uh, refer to louder and louder uh, kinds of screaming or shrieking. There's another depiction of this event. Uh, this is what happened to St. Joseph of Cupertino when he saw the holy house of Loreto, the shrine of Loreto in Northern Italy. And he saw angels uh, ascending and descending from the shrine of Loreto. He just took off. Uh, but by that point, I should, I should mention this. The Franciscans had trouble with Joseph because he attracted too much attention and he distracted his brethren too much with all of this constant levitating. So at the Pope's orders, followed up by the Inquisition, 
he keeps being sent to ever more remote Franciscan houses and ends up basically the last decade of his life, a prisoner in his cell, not allowed to mingle with his brethren, not allowed to eat with them except for once a week, and only able to attend mass with his brethren once a week. The rest of the time he's locked up in his little suite, or in some cases, a tiny little room. So that's puzzling, right? You have this miracle, but instead of letting the world see it, it's put behind closed doors, too distracting. Another depiction of the Loretto levitation. And um, he converts a Lutheran prince <laughs> who was visiting Assisi. And um, not just the Lutheran prince, Prince Frederick of Saxony, a descendant of the princes who protected Luther. And he becomes Catholic and he stays up there in Saxony and he's quite a problem for his family. But Joseph uh, levitates during mass. Uh, and uh, the prince is just convinced, also flies over his, his head. So he's convinced there's something real here in this church. And uh, the account goes on, one of his uh, companions uh, was said to have stamped, stomped his foot in disgust and said, oh, I, I hate the fact I came to this place. I never had any problems with my faith before, but now I do and he ends up becoming Catholic. So that's weaponizing. See, that's what I meant by weaponizing. Another levitation where he cured a man who was insane by touching his head, but in the process, he went up with the man. He was grabbing his hair and they both went up. And there's the uh, Admiral of Castile and his wife fainting uh, when Joseph flies over their heads. He flew over the Pope's head, Urban VIII. And Urban supposedly said, oh, oh, if, if this man dies before I do, I will testify at his canonization inquest that I saw him over my head. Yes, so even a pope. So we're not talking about, you know, mud-caked peasants here seeing Joseph. This is, these are the, the super elite who testify to the fact he went up. And then uh, I got a question about Baroque yesterday. Well, here are Baroque renditions of medieval levitations. So, you know, the, 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 not the rewriting of history, but the repainting of history. Go back to medieval figures and depict them levitating. Vicente Carducho loved to paint his saints levitating. Um, and here his version of the stigmatization of St. Francis. Look how different that is from Bellini's. And on the right-hand side, uh, his feast day was two, year, uh, two days ago, uh, St. Anthony of Padua, levitating. Uh, and he's not holding infant Jesus in his arms. Notice, it's hard to say whether uh, he's going up to Mary, infant Jesus, or coming down to Anthony, but it doesn't matter. He's levitating. Look under him. See the shadow. St. Dominic. Carlos Cereza, the levitation of St. Dominic, 17th century. Again, drawn to the crucifix. Carducho again, the vision of St. Hugo. Um, 
a Carthusian. This painting hangs in the Louvre Museum. And there you have some Franciscan, nobody has ever identified him, levitating with witnesses. But there's another miracle going on. He had kitchen duty that day, but he went into mystical ecstasy and couldn't perform the task required of him by obedience. So angels came and did his work in the kitchen. But notice he's levitating and glowing. But Protestants have demonic levitation. Uh, and here we're coming close to the end of, of the lecture. Um, don't forget this fact, that Protestants believe this is real too, but it's, it's done by the devil. And this, look, look how late this book is for, the, 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 these are Calvinists, these are Puritans, uh, the 1681 book. This is the frontispiece to the book shows different things the devil has done, <clears throat> including those two images uh, of a man who levitated just like Joseph up to the trees. And another one is a, a young boy who levitated even though those men tried to hold him down, he went up and that's the depiction of this. And I found a very similar uh, account from Boston, 1693, a young girl who was possessed by the devil and none other than Cotton Mather, the great Puritan divine is involved in this. And a dozen men try to hold the girl down when she's possessed by the devil, but up she goes to the ceiling and they cannot stop her from doing so. Really strange stuff. Witches, of course, fly, levitate. Here's an illustration of this. And then there's bilocation. But you see, I'm bilocating right now. I'm here in Connecticut, but I'm also there. Uh, I don't know how close your building is to the shrine. But I'm there and I'm here. But that's not the kind of bilocation we're talking about. Francis, again, he bilocated. Uh, another Giotto depiction of this. Another Giotto depiction of the same event. Uh, he showed up at Arles in France, even though he was in Assisi. St. Joseph Cupertino showed up to help his mother die when she was on her deathbed. But this woman breaks every record. Sor Maria de Agreda. Same dates, almost exactly as St. Joseph Cupertino. Uh, she not only levitated, she bilocated. She went all the way from Agreda in Spain to what present day New Mexico and Texas to serve as a missionary to the Indians. Now remember that image uh, you saw yesterday uh, of the Franciscan nun who went to the Philippines holding a crucifix. Look at this image of Maria de Agreda teaching the natives about Christianity. It's a fascinating story. And it's a, it's a huge legend in Southwestern uh, United States lore. She's known as the lady in blue because she was a conceptionist Franciscan and her cloak was blue. But there she is, over 500 times she supposedly did this, over 500 times. She, she was in Agreda, the nuns saw her, but at the very same time, while in ecstasy, she was in New Mexico, Christianizing the natives. 
and she also, as if that were not enough, had visits from the Virgin Mary, and the Virgin Mary dictated to her her autobiography. Look at all those volumes. It's over a million words in length. And it's the Virgin Mary recounting the whole story of salvation from her conception all the way to her assumption. And I wish I had more time to tell you about this, but that's a whole other subject. We'll end with this. So who is the first genuine certifiable levitator? It's this man, Jean-Francois Pilate de Josier, who was the first man to go up in a balloon. And guess what? Before they sent him up in a balloon, they did exactly the same thing that NASA and the Russians did in the 1960s. They sent animals up in the balloon to see what would happen to them. But Jean-Francois was the first, and he was a scientist. Witches also levitate, and there's a whole other story, but you're more familiar with this, so I'm not going to spend much time in it. Protestants and Catholics both thought witches flew, and of course, that the devil did it. And the funny thing is that while Protestants reject so much of Catholic theology and rebuild it in other ways, they accept Catholic demonology almost 100%. Very interesting. Wrong, but definitely possible, according to Catholics and Protestants. And there you see a devil carrying a witch up on a pitchfork. And uh, you know, even, even in 1798 in Spain, some Spanish noble commissioned Francisco Goya to draw him uh, images of witchcraft. Uh, and here's what one of the images that Goya came up with, which is not just beautiful, but also very spooky. But they are there levitating, just like all these demonic uh, allied witches do. And then there are magicians who do this. I'm sure you've seen an act or two here and there. And spiritualists in the 19th and 20th century claim that they levitated too. And actually, if we have time, I'll tell you a funny story from my own family history about a levitating table. But we'll end with this. Levitation is possible. We have it. Look it up on Amazon. You can, you can buy this infinity orb magnetic levitating speaker Bluetooth and uh, a desk knickknack, you know, floating globe. You can take levitating trains in other countries, not here, because we're too far behind the rest of the world. And uh, by location, well, I'm doing it right now. It's just a different kind. And I'm going to stop sharing and open it up for questions. Thank you so much. I'd love to hear more about this fifth gospel and especially, um, I mean, you, you mentioned that it went from her conception until the assumption. Mm -hmm. So is there, I mean, I know that this is sort of very early historically, but is there any grappling with concept of immaculate conception oh well she was you know here's the whole deal she was a conceptionist franciscan so this this autobiography of the virgin mary her immaculate conception is central to it 
And there's more to it than that too, because uh, she's, she's not just uh, immaculate Mary. She is co-redemptrix of the human race. And in the section that details the passion of Christ, which takes up an entire volume just for that one day, right? Good Friday, the Thursday, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, it takes up a whole volume. The Virgin Mary begs God, please let me suffer with my son. And he grants her that favor. And she feels every blow, every single sort of pain her son suffers, she suffered too. But the text is riddled with references to her, her uh, status as co-redemptrix. And not only that, the history of the early church, the first century church, the church we read about in the Acts of the Apostles, guess who was really in charge? It wasn't Peter. <laughs> Peter, as usual, as in the Gospels, kept fumbling, uh, but Mary solved every problem. Uh, the Sorbonne in the 17th century condemned this work because it, it was deemed indecent because it had details about the way in which Mary was conceived. Uh, but the Sorbonne didn't uh, object to the fact that, you know, this basically was a fifth gospel. The book has an imprimatur. Um, this, this, this fine point in, in Catholic teaching that private revelations of the sort that Mary of Agreda received um, are there to be believed or not believed. Nobody's forced to believe it. It's a personal revelation. She made it to venerable, but her canonization um, is still, still being, they're still trying um, to get her canonized, but she has yet to be beatified or canonized. Thank you. Uh, so early on, you were discussing um, sort of debates over laws of nature and whether miracles coincide or, or subvert them. Do you think it would be useful or accurate to, strictly speaking, forswear uh, language of, of laws of nature in favor of discussing like the, the potencies of nature or, or the causal interactions of things, um, sort of perhaps habitually uh, bringing things about in nature, but not in the same sense like a, a law of nature that right. things abide by. So, so miracles perhaps being other uh, causal influences. Yeah, uh, and actually, you know, the, the it's very medieval term laws of nature, uh, and hence, hence the language of much of this discussion. But in fact, um, the point made by Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and everyone else that, that I cited is that it's not so much about the laws of nature. This miracles are about our perception of what we think nature is, right? And, and whatever laws nature is governed by. So it's, it's a matter of perception. There's a lot of work being done now and um, not, not much by Catholics, but uh, really serious scholars uh, who are taking findings in uh, subatomic physics and um, also um, astronomy 
about the way in which you know subatomic particles behave, the way in which things in space behave, and the possibility of multiple dimensions. Now, uh, empirical science is completely redefining the meaning of what medievals called laws of nature. And perhaps the best known example is the Heisenberg principle, so-called Heisenberg principle, that when you observe subatomic particles, they can actually be in two places at the same time. And actually the observer's perspective affects the way that the particles behave. So um, we're, we're on a threshold now. We're on some kind of threshold that might actually bring science and religion closer together than they have been since the 13th or 14th century. Uh, Hi, thank you very much. I'm really interested in the idea of levitation as the soul going up to God mm -hmm. and therefore God being above um, and somehow, you know, in space, in the in the sky. Um, and it relates to a conversation I was having um, uh, yesterday or the day before with some people here about um, the Washington Monument and the sort of obelisk pointing up and the billionaires space programs and sort of salvation being in space. Mm -hmm. So I wondered um, if you had any thoughts on the theology of the kind of cosmology that was going on at the time when this sort of levitating was was happening and was was common. Yeah, sure, because you know uh, levitation predates Copernicus and Galileo, and actually uh, Teresa's understanding of what's happening to her soul, which other uh, levitators also repeat, does include this um, spatial understanding of the place of heaven and where the soul goes when you're having a mystical experience. It's very hard in the 16th and 17th century for anyone to get away from this perspective, even after Copernicus and Galileo, right? That, that, that heaven was not necessarily a place above the earth, out there in space. It still gives people sometimes uh, immense difficulties to try to conceptualize heaven. Uh, but you do have Jesus ascending upwards. And in Christian theology, you cannot get around that because uh, I don't think there are very many theologians, but maybe I don't read enough of those kinds of theologians uh, who, who interpret that that narrative completely metaphor about Jesus ascending. So God is always up and we're down here. Uh, but keep in mind, Teresa did not have a university degree and she was homeschooled. She, she, she was very well read. She actually read a lot and she knew a lot about theology despite her constant disclaimers. Oh, please, please, the, I'm just a woman and I haven't had an education. But um, I don't know if she was aware of Copernicus. Calvin was aware of Copernicus, called him an idiot. <laughs> because in the Bible it says that Joshua made the sun stand still. <laughs> So science and religion in the early modern period 
very interesting relationship. Thank you so much, Professor. Um, earlier, you mentioned in an answer to another question that um, the present day, you would say that um, science and religion are becoming more and more publicly compatible, and we're nearing a time that is almost close to the compatibility of the 13th century. Um, and yesterday, you also mentioned the rise of the empirical sciences um, by some is attributed to the Protestant Reformation. Um, and my question would have to be, why would some still attribute that rise of the empirical sciences to the Reformation when even in modern day, um, like interactions I've had with Protestants, there still is that focus away from the sensory and mm -hmm. the um, and and matter and the sciences. Yeah, well, you know, it's an old uh, Protestant cudgel uh, to be wielded against Catholics. And um, prime exhibit number one is Galileo. Oh, look, uh, the Roman Inquisition made Galileo uh, beg for mercy and take back his teaching uh, about heliocentric universe, um, which is a misunderstanding of what happened in Galileo's trial. Uh, the great uh, Jesuit theologian Robert Bellarmine was very good friends with Galileo. There were many Catholic clergy, actually, there are many uh, members of the Curia in Rome who had no trouble with the heliocentric theory. So it's not just Galileo's trial. I think that created this Protestant trope about Catholicism being uh, the enemy of science. It's the fact that as empirical sciences developed, Catholics kept claiming the miraculous, right? And for rationalists, especially materialistic rationalists, Catholicism was just the opposite of empirical science because you know, we believe in transubstantiation, for instance. Uh, how could that be? Well, that's, that's, that's not scientific. So we have all this. No, despite the fact that there have been many, many Catholic scientists uh, and that science has moved forward, uh, many discoveries made by Catholic scientists, uh, not the least which is uh, Gregor Mendel, uh, who developed genetics. So uh, the Vatican has had an observatory since Galileo's day. And um, here's the curious thing about Prospero Lambertini and the new canonization process and what he did was that he brought scientists, actual scientists into the canonization process. And uh, here's what they had to do. They had to confirm that whatever had happened, whatever miracle was being claimed, and Keep in mind, a huge percentage, overwhelming percentage of miracles and canonization cases are healings. <clears throat> they want scientists and doctors who will say, according to our present knowledge, we can't explain how this happened. This never happens. So um, it became very scientific. Um, there's a book by Paolo Parigi, The Rationalization, Rationalization of Miracle, which is about this shift that took place in the Catholic Church. And um, when once interviewed by CBS, like 20 years ago, the, um, 
the man who was in charge of the canonization process of de determining whether miracles were genuine or not at the Vatican was interviewed by CBS News. And he said, what I always look for and what I love to get is a doctor who is an atheist who will say, this can't be explained. So we're still, we're still at that point. But uh, I was once corrected by a colleague teaching here at Yale. Uh, we have this great books course program known as Directed Studies. And um, I forget what it was exactly that I said in my lecture about Catholicism and science. But a colleague uh, came up right after me because we were sharing the lecture. And uh, he told the entire class I was wrong, that Catholicism is the enemy of science. So, uh, and this would have been uh, 2001 or two. So, still going on. Hi, Professor. I have a question regarding, um, well, I actually was able to find um, uh, St. Maria Agreda's writings just here. Um, and I find it really fascinating that, you know, it's private revelation. So I understand that it's kind of a different category, but I find that so bewildering. Um, and to not have heard it until today is even more so. Mm. Um, but thinking of, you know, kind of these private revelations and uh, Teresa of Avila is a very uh, prominent example of uh, ecstatic experiences, you know, granted to, um, to chosen few, but, um, you know, I remember having read something recently that said maybe she was having temporal lobe seizures, you know, yeah. trying to look at it from, uh, empirical view. Um, and this is something that is very prominent in the church and accepted to be happening to people. Um, and you had mentioned that there are lots of levitating saints and all these things happening in the 15th and 16th centuries. Um, and I can't, I can't believe that they don't happen anymore. Uh, and yet at the same time, we don't have, you know, you don't really have stories of people levitating or um, women falling into like the throes of ecstasy after mass, that kind of thing. Um, and how, how would, if they did, how would we do anything other than, you know, take them to a hospital to be examined? Well, um, good question. But the first thing I want to say is all these things have kept happening. They just don't happen as often. They don't get reported as often and they don't make the press, but yes, Actually, two of the most extreme uh, bilocators in Catholic history are from the 20th century. Padre Pio, Saint Padre Pio, and uh, Marie, oh gosh, she has such a long name, I, I have trouble. A nun in France who died in 1950, who supposedly uh, bilocated many times, and even in her bilocations, rescued people from concentration camps because at the end of the war, she was awarded two medals, not one, two, by President Charles de Gaulle for rescuing so many prisoners and helping so many uh, allied soldiers who were trapped. Of course, some of the, these cases, all it involved was dressing the soldiers as nuns <laughs> and showing them the way out of France. 
But anyway, no, this keeps happening. It has kept happening. But the church in the 21st century would have the same approach to it because it's the same problem in the 21st century as in the 16th or 17th. Yes, you first have to determine that this person is not insane. Yes, absolutely. That's part of the process. Then you have to determine where, where these experiences are coming from because, you know, here's another whole can of worms, the devil, right? The, the devil is part of the process in, in all Catholic uh, discerning about whether somebody's receiving visions from the right place or having experiences that are coming from the right place or not. But um, the, the issue of temporal lobe epilepsy. Yes, mystical experience has been pathologized since the 19th century. Uh, oh yeah, some kind of pathology and it has some kind of medical uh, explanation. There are two articles on St. Teresa and temporal lobe epilepsy. Uh, one more recent than the other, but the first one to appear, I can tell you was 1982, Catholic Historical Review, published right there at Catholic U. Marcela Miro Barton, B-A-R-T-O-N. Did uh, St. Teresa suffer from temporal lobe epilepsy? She compares all of the um, diagnostic tests that are done for temporal lobe epilepsy. And yeah, maybe she did have temporal lobe epilepsy is the conclusion of the article. But keep in mind, it's in the Catholic Historical Review, right? So the ending of the article is beautiful. It says, look, basically, I'm rephrasing. So what if she had temporal lobe epilepsy? Look what she did. <laughs> Look what she did with it, right? Um, yeah, scientists can very easily, uh, you know, many of the external physical signs of mystical ecstasy resemble cataleptic seizures. Body freezes up, you can't move it. And you, you prick people with needles, uh, light matches in front of their eyes and so on, and they don't respond. That happens, that's known as catalepsis. But that also happens uh, to mystics in ecstasy. We're only now beginning to study the human brain and, and where religious experience happens. But again, my, my, my reply to that would be similar to the, the author of the article on St. Teresa is, uh, yeah, so what if cataleptic seizure uh, accompanies middle, mystical ecstasy? Uh, it's the end result that matters. Or uh, Bertrand Russell had this, this uh, beautiful but uh, horrifying uh, description of mysticism. And he said, there is no difference between men who drink too much and see snakes and women who eat too little and see angels. I always like to say, yeah, it's a hell of a difference. 
One of them sees angels, the other one sees snakes. <laughs> of course there's a difference. You know, Bertrand Russell authored a book which my older brother purchased when I was still in high school. He was older than me. The book horrified me. The title was Why I Am Not a Christian. <laughs> Bertrand Russell. Um, again, that's always the payoff. And actually, that was one of the things that Prospero Lambertini changed in the canonization process. Please, please, let's emphasize heroic virtue above everything else. Miracles, yes, they're important, but nobody becomes a saint on miracles alone if they have not displayed heroic virtue, which you know, is a broad term, but it's your life, the way you lead it, that actually makes you a saint, not whether you levitate or, or bilocate. Because, you know, face it, most saints don't levitate or bilocate. Uh, so it's rare, very rare. Um, Pope John Paul II, while he was a seminarian, in Rome, or I don't know if he got to Rome after he had already been ordained. But anyway, he was in Rome. He was a very young man. Uh, he went out of his way to visit Padre Pio uh, and to go to confession with Padre Pio. Although at that time, there were many in the church who just didn't trust Padre Pio and, and uh, would give him the evil eye. So, you know, this is one of the beauties of Catholicism is, you know, you bring Catholics together for mass, and if you could look inside their heads at what their thinking is, what their position on church teachings is, and so on, you've got people who wouldn't want to be in the same room with each other. But there we are, in the same room. To me, the older I get, um, the more beautiful that seems to me.